Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program in which we explore with engineers, scientists, decision makers, policy makers, and stakeholders some of the major issues confronting our coastal regions and what's being done to address them. I'm Jerry Schubel, president of the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I will be your host. Each month, we will explore a new coastal issue from a national perspective. A number of coastal institutions, mostly aquariums, in every section of the country will explore these same topics from a regional perspective. Over the course of the next 12 months, our goal is to create a digital library of these conversations, both national and regional, that can be used by communities to help prepare for what promises to be a challenging future. In each program, I will have a co-host from one of these aquariums. Worldwide, we are experiencing two of the largest migrations in all of human history, the migration of people to the coast and the migration of people into cities. More than half of Earth's 7.2 billion people live within 50 miles of the coast. More than half live in cities, and more than two-thirds of the world's large cities are on the coast. The intense settlement and development of the coast over the past few centuries took place during a period of relatively stable sea level, but that is changing. The sea is rising more rapidly now than at any time in the past 8,000 years and it will continue to rise for decades, perhaps centuries, because of climate change. Superimposed upon the higher sea, coastal storms and storm surges pose a growing threat to coastal cities. Society will protect many of the world's great cities against the rising sea. The investment in them is simply too great to abandon them. But some communities may choose to move away from the coast in a process referred to as strategic retreat and our reliance on the urbanized coastal ocean is too great not to plan for its future, to reduce society's conflicts with coastal and marine ecosystems, and to stimulate appropriate and compatible human uses. In this series, we will explore the challenges and the opportunities with experts. In this first program, we want to describe the landscape, or the coastscape, and what's at stake, what the big issues are, challenges, the threats, and who is responsible for dealing with these and what they're doing. I have with me today three people in leadership positions at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. All of them played key roles in different aspects of ocean management, research, education, and outreach. The first is Margaret Davidson. Margaret is acting director of the NOAA office of Ocean and Coastal Resource Management, OCRM. Welcome, Margaret. Good to be here, Jerry. And the second is Louisa Koch, NOAA's Director of Education. And the third is Ralph Cantrell, Director of the Coastal America Partnership. Among the three of them, they have a wealth of experience and expertise in dealing with coastal issues at local, national, and even international levels. Now, we're going to be concentrating on U.S. issues in this series, but they are a global problem. I want to start with Margaret Davidson. Tell us something about the Coastal Zone, what it is, why it's so important to this nation. Certainly, Jerry. And I'm not going to give you the, the legal definition. I want to give you the very practical definition. And, of course, we all intuitively understand that the coast 
is, is that part of the country that is, uh, surrounds the Great Lakes and surrounds the uh, ocean and the uh, bays and estuaries that we're familiar with. But also, you have to think about it. You mentioned the Mississippi River. We have to extend up our watersheds, uh, not just as far as the tide comes and goes, but there's a great uh, connectivity between what happens in the watershed and what happens in the coastal areas. And that coastal watershed also extends out into the ocean for some distance. So uh, I take a very broad definition of coastal watershed. So in some places, it could be all the way from the mountains out past the coral and oyster reefs uh, to as far as uh, miles offshore. Uh, but in practicality, it is, as you said, it is where uh, many of the people uh, live and most of the nation's economy is generated. So it, 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 it's either defined by coastal counties usually or 50 miles within the coast and something like half the population. Well, there's a national definition and every state has a different legal definition for what it considers the coast. But generally when you're quoting that population number, we are talking about the counties that are on the ocean front are on the Great Lakes, the coastal counties that you just referenced. And you mentioned that it contributes a, to a large amount to our economy. What Certain. percentage of the GDP? Comes well, it's a little economy? over 50% uh, of the people generating nearly 60% of the nation's economy. So you can see uh, that the coast is sort of the economic golden egg of America. All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna come back to that in, in just a minute. But let me now turn this over to Louisa Koch. Louisa, you're NOAA's Director of Education, and many people don't think of NOAA as having an educational mandate, but it does, and it's a very important educational program. Tell us a little bit about the, the scope of your education program. So NOAA is the ocean agency. We have satellites and ships, buoys, and ocean drifters that are monitoring the oceans and coasts all the time. And we have scientists that are taking that data and interpreting it and, and, and understanding what's going on with the ocean. And the education program is based on that science and that understanding. And we use that to inform people about what the big ocean issues are. We want an informed citizenry capable of making decisions about important issues. And there are many important issues around the oceans. And Louisa, just say a word then. It, it's K to 12. It's the general public. Uh, what, what, we're broadcasting this from an aquarium. Do, do aquariums and informal science education play a role at NOAA? Yes, aquariums have a very important role to play. People go to aquariums because they want to learn about the ocean and the coast, and they're very, they expect to get that information when they go to aquariums. And um, so we work very closely with aquariums to teach people about this ocean planet that we live on. The majority of our oxygen comes from the ocean. Ocean covers the majority of the Earth's surface. The, o the oceans guide the weather and the climate. It's very important for us to get those messages out there, and aquariums are one of our best partners to work with to do that. And, and Ralph, you're the director of the Coastal America Partnership, and you have a, a network of uh, aquariums, mostly aquariums, but other coastal institutions that become an important delivery network for messages. Tell us a little bit about the Coastal America Partnership. Well, it's really a partnership uh, in four parts. There's a, a group of nine agencies that come together every month, um, along with uh, the White House, the uh, Council on Environmental Quality, to talk about what are key issues and how can we work together to solve problems that we couldn't solve individually. Um, the other piece, uh, which you've already mentioned, is the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network, 
which is uh, now 25 aquaria and marine research centers that have come together to um, do a number of initiatives to um, share their knowledge uh, with a variety of, of players, as was already discussed, from the public to local elected officials to um, even Congress. Uh, and then uh, a third piece is a uh, corporate partnership where corporations um, have uh, banded together with us to help address issues that can't really be addressed just with um, governmental resources, but looking at uh, providing corporate uh, financial help to, uh, to projects that the agencies are undertaking. And then the fourth piece is a uh, nonprofit organization called the Coastal America Foundation that gives us the ability to uh, bring together funds from federal agencies and the private sector. All right, thank, thank you. I want to come back now to Margaret, yeah. because we, we've talked about OCRM, which you're the director of. We've talked about NOAA education mm -hmm. briefly, Coastal America. But most peop many people watching this probably don't realize that NOAA is the nation's ocean and atmosphere agency with tremendous responsibility, and it serves this, this nation in many ways people just don't fully appreciate. It's more than the weather service. It's more than fisheries. Tell, tell us a little bit about NOAA. Well, it perhaps has one of the broadest portfolios across the entire federal government. Uh, as Louisa mentioned, uh, because of the responsibilities related to understanding weather and climate patterns, uh, we, we operate and monitor a, a series of observation capabilities from the bottom of the ocean, not just through the atmosphere, but all the way uh, uh, to the sun because we also have responsibilities for solar and electromagnetic storms as a matter of fact. Uh, but we also, uh, as you mentioned, we are related to the fisheries service, but uh, part of coastal management is understanding uh, coastal water quality, coastal habitat, as well as uh, coastal economic uh, issues. Uh, something like 90% of most of the things that Americans consume come through the ports systems that are all around our country. And so it's very important for us not only to understand these issues, but to develop a way to balance uh, our economic requirements, our, our requirements for coastal habitat, for fisheries and water quality and natural defenses, uh, along with uh, people's natural inclination to enjoy and use the coast for recreation as well as economic purposes. So it seems to me that with, with NOAA, it's the one agency that is monitoring the health of the planet and the, re the relationship of people with the planet and how we're affecting the ability of the earth to sustain life and, and the ecosystem. We not only have our finger on the pulse of the planet, uh, uh, as a doctor would have on your personal well-being, uh, but uh, through Louise's uh, programs and other programs that NOAA has, we also have boots on the ground that are working at the local and regional level, working through universities and state and local agencies uh, to help bring the kind of information and tools that uh, folks uh, might be interested in as they make decisions both at the personal level as well as at the community level. And, and obviously it's a science organization but it's, it's different from the National Science Foundation. It, well, so we have to participate with all the science agencies. You mentioned the National Science Foundation, and there are others, of course, NASA, 
uh, and others, but we're also a resource management agency. So we also sit in the venues with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Interior and even the Department of Agriculture. So NOAA has a breadth of both capabilities and responsibilities that are actually very daunting when you consider we also have one of the smallest budgets in the federal family. Yes, that's true. And I think everybody know, expects NOAA to use the results of its research, the results of its science, to serve society. And not, not in the long term, but in the short to intermediate term. We have high expectations for you. Well, is that not the responsibility of any public agency to serve the people who pay our salary? Uh, sometimes they don't fully appreciate uh, what it is that we have to offer in the same way that many people who don't want to pay taxes and yet they want to have the police and the fire and the educational services when they want them. So part of our job is not only explaining the science but explaining the connection between uh, what you're getting for the money that you pay at NOAA. It's a, it's a great bargain for the amount of money uh, that NOAA gets through the federal budget process, uh, the sweep of the things that we do and, and the scope of our responsibilities and the impacts that we have. I do, I agree with you. I think it's a great bargain. It's one of the greatest bargains that we have. And I think while what you say about uh, support, agencies that are supported by the public, uh, we expect them to deliver. But some, like NOAA, the, the time frame is uh, very, often is very short, immediate. After a major event like Katrina or Sandy? Well, we have major responsibilities on these short time scales. Yes, we're, we're involved with things like oil spill as well as uh, disaster response and recovery. We provide technical support, uh, technical and scientific support to the Coast Guard for things like uh, when the, uh, we had that little oil problem down in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago. Uh, but we're also involved on a fairly daily basis uh, working with people like Chambers of Commerce and other fluential uh, leaders in our communities who are shaping our future, our economic and our social futures. All right, I agree. Now, let, I want to ask each of our three guests since the future programs are going to deal with major coastal issues. Mm -hmm. let's, let's start, Will give us one issue that you think the public should know about, and then I'm going to ask Louisa to add one, and Ralph, and we're going to cycle around until we get a list of about 10. Well, fortunately, you already mentioned uh, the, the growing population pressure and the changing weather and climate patterns, so I don't have to mention that. So what I will mention is this growing conflict of, of expectations for how we will use these coastal areas, both on land and out in sea, and, and how do we reconcile these things. In, in uh, our country, over the last uh, 50 years, we have begrudgingly come to embrace something called land use planning, because it turns out that it's really uh, the best way to uh, plan for infrastructure and for economic vitality. Uh, we now be, need to begin to get folks to understand in that same way we need to understand and balance these uh, competing and sometimes conflicting uh, economic uses of these important coastal and ocean areas. All right, good. Now, Louisa, what would you add, add to, as a topic you want us to explore? 
So I would say ocean acidification is a very important topic to explore. The ocean covers 71% of the Earth's surface, and so all the carbon we're putting up into the atmosphere um, is getting absorbed into the ocean, and it's changing the, the, ocean, the chemistry balance of the ocean. And this has really important implications for life forms in the ocean, and for life in the ocean, that impacts us. That's one the public, many of the public are not very aware of, the causes, the consequences, and the, the long time frames over which these effects will be manifested. Ralph, what would you add to the list? Well, I think it's one that you already mentioned, Jerry, and that is sea level rise. It's not the sea level rise that we sometimes see in horror movies with um, flooded cities that we're going to see in the next 20 years. What we're going to see is something slower, something uh, more hidden that we can't really see, and that's the impacts of sea level rise on a couple of things. One is drinking water supplies in coastal areas where um, many communities uh, rely on uh, shallow surface water supplies, and uh, the sea level rising is uh, reducing the size of those uh, water supplies. Um, but the other thing is really the undermining of infrastructure, whether it's bridges across uh, rivers or waterways uh, or um, water lines, sewer lines buried in the ground, the rising sea level um, is going to have a major impact on those uh, uh, pieces of infrastructure that we're already having a hard time finding money to upgrade or replace as they wear out. Margaret, what would you add to that as your, your next one? We not only have to engage uh, the, the whole of society in understanding these issues, but we have to also recognize uh, that the whole of so society has to contribute to the solutions, and that includes uh, how do we do this financially. Uh, I don't think that, uh, at least in the very near-term future, that uh, there's going to be many degrees of freedom in the federal budget process. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, for instance, that you see uh, leaders in the insurance and financial services sector beginning to be increasingly concerned about weather and climate issues in this country and the kind of exposure uh, that we have, uh, the, the amount of property that is risk and, and what that means for local to national economies. And part of that, I think, is the, the mismatch in the time frames of sea level rise and climate change versus the, the terms of office of our elected and some appointed officials. Well, of course, uh, if you are actually a professional politician, you usually are used to thinking in somewhere from two to six year cycles. Uh, and we're talking about things that uh, occur in, uh, well, we measure them and tend to report upon them almost in a decadal kind of frame. Uh, so, but the thing about it is that everyone does recognize that the weather has gotten weird. <laughs> the weather's gotten weird, right. And often it's easier to talk about weather than about climate. All right, Ralph, do you want to add another one to this list? Well, I think uh, it's sort of related to my first one on sea level rise, but it's uh, dealing with freshwater. Um, we're seeing uh, changes in freshwater supplies. I think California is probably our best example of it. if the uh, uh, global warming continues, um, we have reduced snowpack in the mountains and therefore less water running off. And that has impacts not only for uh, fresh water for drinking purposes, but also fresh water for the ecosystem, um, really um, recharging the uh, uh, 
habitats uh, that require a freshwater flush and things like that. So I think the uh, reduced water flowing to the coast um, is a big problem. Louisa, what, what would your next one be? So mine builds off uh, of topics you've all mentioned, but it's really helping communities, that are the, the coastal communities, the huge population along the coast, deal with the storm inundation that's going to be coming their way and, and, and working to protect the infrastructure that's um, too big to fail and figuring out um, how we actually help communities tackle this very uh, difficult issue by giving them good scientific, scientific information about what they can expect um, and, and helping them deal with the problems. All right, we'll come back so to community plan. We'll come back to that one in a minute also when we talk about resiliency. But I want to ask, am I the only one who worries about coastal eutrophication? Tell, tell people what that is. R Ralph just mentioned the whole issue of freshwater inflow to the coast. And, and that's but he's worried about the drinking he, he's, water. He wants you to stay alive. But uh, <laughs> with that water, uh, that water uh, not only recharges uh, everything that's uh, but it also carries along everything that we discard down our kitchen sinks and off of our lawns and our roadways. And in, in areas where you have uh, reduced rainfall regimes and yet a great population uh, that produces a lot of uh, byproducts from their life that goes into these waterways, uh, you often get a situation and when you, a you actually have more nutrients over fertilization than you have water. And so uh, here in Southern California, it does present chronic water quality problems. I think that's actually one of the reasons why surf riders began in Southern California, because uh, it was harmful to go uh, uh, surfing at the beach. Uh, but in other places uh, beyond Southern California, we get these massive hypoxic uh, explosions. Tell, harmful tell people what hypoxia is. Hypoxia means that uh, there are so many chemical nutrients in the water that it consumes all the oxygen and everything that's living tends to die. We all seem to require oxygen. So in some places like the Gulf of Mexico, we focus on the hypoxic or the dead zone. And other places like Florida, the Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, and dozens of other places around the planet, we talk about harmful algal blooms. So that uh, these are organisms that have adapted to these uh, over-enriched situations, uh, and they tend to have explosive growth, kind of like crown starfish, but different, uh, and they dominate the system and crowd out everything else. So those, that uh, list of problems that you enumerated, those are a result of not managing non-point source pollution, the it's pollution it, that comes from distributed resources. It's not managing the byproducts of our daily life. Well, yes, uh, and you can call it non-point source pollution. Uh, well, that's a pretty wonky term. Uh, that's why I say it's the stuff well, that we pour down our sink or we put on our lawns that are, comes off of our cars as we drive or, around or like Or agricultural runoff. Yes, we have tended to focus on agricultural yeah. runoff because we could identify a discrete set of users uh, and we could focus on them. But the reality is that each and every one of us contributes to the, uh, the pollution burden of our environment. So we've done a pretty good job as a nation in controlling what are called point sources, sources of pollution that come out of pipes or smokestacks. Our agricultural but, but community. We, we have done a much less good job of controlling those distributed sources 
that result not from big bad industry, but from all of us. From each and every one of each us. Each and every uh, one. You know, we, yeah. we, we all like to consume, but not so many of us are responsible about what happens right. as a result of our consumption. All right, I, I, this is a good list of topics for us to deal with in future programs. I want to come back to an issue that cuts across these, because it's been pointed out, we have to learn how to manage these conflicts between people and nature yes. and competing uses and yes. so on. And we have this tool called coastal and marine spatial planning, or just marine spatial planning, yes. that was advocated by our, our president. Um, I think it's a potentially powerful tool. It, it, it's been used quite successfully throughout uh, Western Europe, where they've actually been dealing with uh, concentrated populations and conflicts of economic uses for a bit longer than we have. Uh, in this country, uh, it's just beginning to be deployed, uh, perhaps the most successfully. So it's nothing very complicated. It's really taking uh, a mapping process, developing a map, identifying uh, economic uses, identifying critical and important habitats, and a whole range of other categories, and understanding where are the areas that are best suited uh, for uh, intensive uh, use, and where are the areas that we need to protect. And as I said, if we were at the local government level, we'd actually refer to this as land use planning. You don't always want to put the dry cleaner uh, right next door to the uh, school. Right, all right. Um, and as you say, in parts of Western Europe and Australia, they've been doing this for a long time with some success. Yes, they've we, been. We've been told that this is a tool. We've been very reluctant, really, to do much with it in the U.S., mm -hmm. except for single in industries like offshore wind. Well, Why is that? Why do we lack the courage to move forward on Well, uh, I think we have to understand that at least right now, the American psyche uh, has a great deal of hostility towards governance. And government. Government, uh, you know, uh, as I alluded earlier, uh, very few people uh, uh, embrace paying taxes even though they have very high expectation for services. Uh, so there's a disconnect between uh, what people want and what people want to pay for. Everyone wants to go to heaven, no one wants to die. <laughs> yeah, all right, well, uh, we talked about storms and this increasing uh, issue of sea level rise and coastal storms and large populations. After we have a major event like Superstorm Sandy or Katrina, often the urge is let's get back to normal as quickly as possible. Is that the right long-term strategy, knowing that sea level will rise for decades and maybe centuries? Who, would you like to start? And then I want to turn to ask Louisa it, and it, Val. It is a challenge. I mean, uh, consider that, uh, let's talk about the New Jersey shore. There are many small coastal communities on the New Jersey shore. A substantial part of the revenues that pay for local services like police, fire, roads, and schools actually are derived from summer tourism and those mom and pop bait shops. So we have historically in this country, at least since 1929, uh, tried to put things back the way they were. But there is a new normal. Already we know this from our weather patterns and you don't in fact have to wait uh, for a major storm. We're already seeing more frequent recurring flooding. We're already seeing higher tidal regimes not related to the phase of the moon. So today's flood is tomorrow's high tide. So it is a different kind of 
uh, baseline that we need to be considering. Uh, because one thing is very clear, uh, there have been a bunch of surveys around this country since uh, Sandy hit the Northeast, and, and why Americans are actually known for the compassion, it's also clear uh, that we're beginning to be fatigued about bailing people out who choose to live in risky places. One of the things that I think that uh, Louisa and Ralph, that, that through education and the CELC network, is that we can raise awareness and deepen the understanding of the public about this new normal, because I'm not so sure it's widely understood by the general public. Would either of you like to comment? I, I agree with you completely, and I think one, one way to really effectively communicate that is by telling stories. Uh, when, you, when you hear the stories of the people that have been affected and you realize how deeply their lives have been changed, and you, you look at the, the data that shows the inundation maps, um, these places are going to be affected over and over again. I, I think stories are a good way to convince people that um, we need to start doing things differently. Ralph, would you add to that, the role you see for the CLC um, network? Yeah, I think that one of the things that the uh, learning centers can really help with is, you know, convincing people that it's not really just oceanfront dwellers who are dealing with these issues. It's not wealthy people who own oceanfront houses. It's most of the flooding really occurs in areas upstream from the oceanfront where um, there are many of our poorer communities, and I know that there's been a great deal of outreach to um, disadvantaged communities by the learning centers, um, and really trying to reach a broad area throughout the community to uh, explain what the uh, what the science is and explain what the impacts are on the people. Okay, and it, we said earlier on that. Uh the, much of this problem relates to the fact that society developed along our coastal regions throughout the world during a period of relatively stable sea, sea level, and now that has changed. As we transition to this new normal, we have to help increase the resiliency of human communities and natural communities, marine life communities, to get us through this transition. Margaret. You've been a, an advocate of uh, resiliency. Tell us a little bit, what do you mean by resiliency and what can we do to help? Well, uh, it, systems under stress tend to respond in particular kinds of ways and that can be uh, some critter uh, in the water, it can also be a human or it can in fact be your community. Uh, resilience uh, is the ability to take that stress and, and continue uh, to uh, recover and thrive. Uh, some people think about resilience as bouncing back to where you were, and I think that's not the right definition because even a rubber band, uh, when stretched too many times, will snap. And that's actually what we're beginning to see in areas, for instance, along the Gulf where they've uh, had repeated uh, weather events, as well as uh, other communities away from the ocean front. Uh, so I think resilience is about maintaining your vitality. How do you, under these threats, these pressures, these stressors, continue to evolve and thrive uh, so that we as individuals and as communities, uh, that we actually have a future and it's bright. And I think, it, as you say, it isn't just human communities, it's natural communities. We place such a, a high value appropriately on wetlands 
And yet, when you look across this country, because of the urbanization of the coast, yes. normally wetlands would migrate inland. In, well, in they a, can only migrate inland if we haven't dammed other, other right. sediment supply coming down the river to provide water supplies for people who live in the desert or otherwise dry places. Uh, are concrete, you know, if you put a road along a highway, it makes it really hard uh, for a wetland or even a forest to migrate across 150 feet of concrete. Yep, absolutely. So we're going to have to help both nature and humans. I think our, our guests have done a good job of mapping out the coastscape and what some of the big issues are, and we're going to be exploring these in future programs. I think that as a nation, we will rely continually and more heavily in the future on NOAA than we ever had in the past. So I want to ask all three guests, would you like to make a closing statement? Margaret? I think we have an excellent opportunity uh, right now in this country during a time of great transition, not just from a weather pattern standpoint, but from a, a political and economic sense. I think it's time to have uh, broad dialogues in which we discuss what are our visions and expectations for the future. Uh, how are we going to get there? Because it, it truly does take the whole of a community to come together. And the most resilient communities are those that have strong social, civic, and religious uh, institutions. So there, there's no substitute for those actual communities where people share hopes, dreams, concerns, and a physical space. We can leverage those through virtual communities, but they have to be rooted in real community. And we have to understand that uh, we may not agree on everything, but that in fact, part of what we say we like about America is in fact that we have this opportunity to have a robust, vibrant disagreements and yet still try to come to some solutions. And I think that's part of the way that we have to find again is how do we get to not just articulating the problems, but how do we get to articulating the solutions and then pulling together to get there. And get there, to move, yes. All right, Louisa and Ralph, last minute comment. So I hope that these coastal conversations really can um, uh, create a, a dialogue along the lines of what Margaret was just saying, where, where people can actually talk to each other about their communities where they live and about things that they care about and start making progress on some of these very important issues. Ralph? It's time. Well, I, I think you folks have uh, covered the waterfront, as they would say, but I, but I really think that the whole concept of a resilient coast is not only the ecosystem, it's not only the economic system, it's also the culture, it's uh, what, uh, what these communities are as, as a whole, um, not just individual pieces. And so I think the more that we can um, recognize that everything works together, the more we can understand ways to adapt. I want to thank our three guests. I want to thank our sponsor, the Roddenberry Foundation. And we look forward to continuing to having these coastal conversations about once a month. We will be posting the topics within the next few weeks. Thank you for watching.